morning. This is kind of a, um, a special time of the year right now for Riverstone Church because just on Friday, this past Friday, a team of youth came back from a summer missions trip up at um, Wyoming and upper kind of central north Pennsylvania, um, learning about living missionally, learning about missions, being challenged to serve the Lord with their lives. And I, I think there was in like the low 20s in the number that um, Jeremy had with him. And um, at the same time, as we're here worshiping the Lord, we have a team over in Holland on an evangelism missions trip. And they're there for a few more days. And praise God for the ministry they've already had this past week. And I'm going to pray now as well for, for them. But also, uh, we have a team leaving on July 27th, this coming Friday, um, going over to Lebanon to do the third out of four um, series of week-long teaching sessions of training Syrian, young Syrian church leaders how to study and teach the Bible. And I, I think we only have, there's only four people on this team. Um, I want to give a little bit of credit to Pastor John, who um, has done a tremendous job, I keep hearing, on preparing the materials for the week. He's going over as one of the teachers. And... Um, I don't think anyone else is. Is anyone else here from the Lebanon team this morning? I think they probably are going to be in the next service. But John's over here. So if you would, would you join with me in praying for what God is doing in these teams, preparing for this trip to go out this Friday, and just praise God that we as a church can touch the world and have an impact by sending our very own people into other parts of the world to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the team of youth who just returned from a trip as they were challenged on living for you in this broken world, uh, what it looks like to live as missionaries, to be challenged, to give their lives completely to you, and Lord, to consider um, future ministry service. We thank you for the responses that we've heard and how you work there. We pray for our Holland team as they're in Holland right now, and it's an evangelism project. They've shared the good news of Jesus Christ with quite a few people already in the previous days. And Lord, we pray that in the coming days while they finish their ministry there, that you would open hearts, help them to communicate the gospel clearly, help them to show the love of Jesus Christ, and Lord, bring them home safely. We thank you for all that you've done in that team so far. And Father, as four of our people prepare to head over to Lebanon just in a few days, we pray for safety for this team. Lord, I pray for relationships. What a wonderful group of just young leaders it is that they're working with in Syria. Father, they are just um, connecting already with people from our church in previous trips. It's giving us an opportunity to really get to know these young adults to help equip them for ministry back in such a, a war-torn, suffering nation. And Lord, I pray for our team. I pray that they would be encouragers. I pray they can help point these young Syrians to Jesus Christ. I thank you for the incredible faith that we have seen from these Syrians on previous trips. And Lord, I pray that you would use our team in a, just in a special way in equipping these Syrians, preparing them for ministry, encouraging them at a time in their lives where I'm sure, Lord, they need desperate encouragement. They're experiencing things that we can't imagine here in the U.S. And Father, we lift up our team, use them. We pray that your spirit would do a great work in preparing hearts of people 
around the world as Riverstone Church has the opportunity to share your love and proclaim the good news. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, believe it or not, is our last Sunday in the book of Numbers. It's um, been a number of months now that we've been going through the book of Numbers. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have us just jump right in to Numbers chapter 35. If you would like a Bible, please just raise your hand and our ushers would be glad to get a Bible to you. And as we always say, if you don't have a Bible at home, please take one of these with you. Um, it's our gift to you and we hope that you use it. And all of today's scripture is going to be on the screen behind me as well. But we're going to pick up in Numbers chapter 35, um, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they give to the Levites from the inheritance of their possession cities to live in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to live in. And their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their herds and for all their beasts. Well, what we see here is a little bit of a reminder. The people of Israel had traveled through the book of Numbers all the way back. They began in Sinai. Here we are about 40 years later. They wandered through the desert. We saw all that took place. And now they're camped on the other side, just on the east side of the Jordan River, opposite the city of Jericho. And what we see now in these three verses that we just read is that the Lord was directing Moses to provide cities for the Levites. Now, to give you a little background, the Levites were the priests. They were God's priests from the tribe of Levi. And the Levitical priests didn't get any land. Remember, God apportioned the land between all of the tribes. Um, we had, you know, to the, the tribes on the east side of Jordan kept some of that land. But the rest of the land in the promised land, God divided it all up between the tribes. And the tribe of Levi it said that um, the Lord was their portion. So as the priests, they weren't given an inheritance of land. But because of that, they now faced a problem. Where were the Levites going to raise their families? Where were they going to live and sleep and pasture all of their animals that needed to eat? So what God did was God relied upon the concept of tithing to provide a place for the Levites to live. And when I say he provided a means of tithing, what happened was God said to Moses, he said, of all the tribes of Israel, if I've given them their land, which is their possession, I want the tribes to give back cities within their land for the Levites to live in. And what God ended up doing here, it goes on, we're going to see in a number of verses that we'll read a little later, was that God did it in such a way that the larger the tribe, the more land they got. But God expected the larger tribes to give more cities to the Levites. So the concept of God provided you this, and of what he gave you, I want you to give back. Really, give it back to God for the Levites to live in. You see, we can learn a lot. There's so much that applies to us today when we think about this concept of, of tithing that God used back here. See, for the Levites, God was saying, I mean, for the tribes of Israel, God was saying, this land belongs to me. I am the one who gave it to you. 
Um, some of the Levites might have thought to themselves, well, wait a minute, what do you mean? We traveled all the way through this desert. We come in. We fought the land. We kicked the people out. We settled it. We, we, you know, we tilled the fields. They hadn't done it yet, but in a lot of ways, I'm sure some of the Levites could have started thinking, we earned all of this. But you see, if you look at Scripture, we know the truth of the story. If it weren't for God, they never would have won any of the battles into the promised land that come up, you know, in, in the coming decades. And let alone that, if it weren't for God, they'd still be slaves back in Egypt. But you see, I think we today tend to at times, if we want to really confess what goes inside on in our hearts, we think as well that, Lord, I, I earned this. But as we think about the fact that everything that we own was given to us by God, he provided it all. See, whatever you have, whether it's your intelligence, your health, your education, whatever it is that allows you to earn what you're able to earn, it was all given to you by God. You see, if you happen to inherit money, that money came to you by the providence of God. And in the same way, the people of Israel, the land that they were given, it was God's land, and God was giving it over to them. So from our perspective, one of the things that we really need to think about is, as we live as Christians, God was, by the way, God was preparing the Israelites to live in the promised land. So he was saying, you're going to be my called out people. I'm giving you a land to live in. And as my called out people, you're going to shine like lights to the world. And you are going to show the people what it means to love, follow, and obey God. You're going to be a model nation to the nations around you. And today, is, for us as Christians, what God is telling us as Christians is, I have called you, my spirit lives within you, and as the body of Christ, the church, you're to live in the land as my model people to show them what it means to know, love, and obey Jesus Christ. And that's what we've been called on to do as well. So when it comes to the concept of tithing that we see here in Numbers chapter 35, we need to realize that everything we have came to us from God. And what I want to challenge us is, if you look in the New Testament, sometimes I have people come to me and say, well, Pastor Bob, how much should I tithe? What does the Bible say? Well, I'll be the first to tell you, the Bible in the New Testament doesn't give you a number. Like, thou shalt give 10%. Now, I will tell you, 10% is probably a generally a good guide as we look at Scripture. But I've heard people say, well, in the, in the Old Testament, you know, they gave 10%. Well, no, they didn't. If you add up everything the Israelites were required to give to God through all of the special offerings, festival offerings, all of it totals up to about one-third of their income is what they gave back to God. So what I would say to someone is if they said, well, what, what should I tithe? My answer would be is that God calls on all of us to be generous in how we live as disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, as a church, we're not just an organization like, you know, these aren't bad ones. I mean, it could be like Little League or Cub Scouts or the Elks or whatever it is. The church is the body of Christ. You see, so God expects his people to give back to him for the ministry that goes forward. I was, um, we had a board meeting the other night, and as we were talking as elders, um, I, I was asked if I would share just a little bit. About three weeks ago, Pastor Tom briefly mentioned something about giving at the church, and 
I, in framing it, what I'd like to share with you guys is to give you a little perspective, because we were at the board meeting, and we were looking at what our trends are, and if we continue on trend, it's probably going to be one of, one of the only years in the 10 years I've been here that we have the potential of falling behind giving in our, in our, behind budget in our giving. We had an incredible month of December, but since December, our giving has kind of gone like this, and we've been chewing through what we brought in in December. We're still in the black, but if the trend continues, we're going to finish behind budget. And one of the comments I made to the elders was, they said, you know, as long as I've been serving here as lead pastor, I've watched our people, and I have just seen our people respond in incredible ways with generosity. So we talked about it at the board meeting. I said, you know what, shame on us if we don't tell our people the situation as it is right now, and had we waited till the end of September and had our people say, well, why didn't you tell us? So I want to just put that out there and say to the church, yeah, we're in the black and praise God and thank you for that generosity. But at the same time, help us as a church family to finish the year well. We finish our fiscal year September 30th. So I'm going to put that out there. And the other thing I want to challenge on is we see from numbers, God put it out there. He said to the tribes, if you have more, I expect you to give more. And if you think about it, if we, here we are as Christians today that if you're a family of four people living on $60,000 and you want to give 10%, that's pretty tough, isn't it, to give $6,000 back to God. But if you're a family of four and you're living on $250,000, the sacrifice of giving that 10% isn't quite the same level of sacrifice. So what I want to challenge us on is, what does it look like to live generously? That's the answer, and I think that's what God was showing his people here. I expect you to be generous. And I want to challenge our church family a little bit more and say, it's not only with your finances. It's with your time. It's with your neighbors. It's when you have a neighbor and you find out that somebody's spouse died, somebody's struggling with cancer, you have a coworker at work. What does it look like for you to be willing to sacrifice and show the love of Jesus Christ so that that person says, wow, there is something different there. You see, the world around us tends not to live very generously. But what God is calling his people to say, my model for obedience is for you to live generously as you meet the needs of people all around you and as you give back to God. I think it's a great concept that God used here as we go through the, the concept of tithing. Um, we're going to pick up in verse 6, but before I do, let me give you a little bit of background. You're going to hear phrases turn out here called the, mansla the manslayer, the murderer. What God is doing is God is now providing a means of justice. He's going to tell the people, not only do I want you in your tribes to give land to the Levites, but I want you within your land to set up what's called cities of refuge. And what he does is he's saying here, if, you know, there, remember, there was no police force back then. The people, they weren't even really, they, they were just becoming a nation. They were moving into their land. God was helping them set up. This is what it looks like to live justly in the land I'm about to give you. There's no police. There's no courts. So what God is, through his word, is providing means of justice within there. Now, what I'll just give you an example here. Let's... Um, Let's just say that um, I'm going to pick on you, Tommy. I'm going to say um, Tommy and Ricky are out, you know, they're out cutting down trees. And Tommy swings that axe and he pulls it back and the metal, the big metal piece on the blade part flies off and it comes over, hits Ricky in the head and Ricky dies. Well, guess what? Tommy is now a manslayer. 
he accidentally killed someone else. Now, if Tommy happens to say, we'll re replay the situation, and he, he sees Ricky over there cutting down a tree, and he goes, I can't believe, you know, he took my seat two weeks in a row in church, and he goes over and bam, hits him over the head with the axe, Tommy is now a murderer. So, as we look at this, Moses, God's going to give Moses direct directions on how to live in the land by sitting, setting up these cities of refuge. Let's pick up in verse 6. There we go. The cities which you shall give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge, which you shall give for the manslayer to flee, and in addition to them you shall give 42 cities. All the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall be 48 cities together with their pasture lands. As for, the, as for the cities which you shall give from the possession of the sons of Israel, you shall take more from the larger and you shall take less from the smaller. Each shall give some of his cities to the Levites in proportion to his possession which he inherits. Now, in distributing the land as God had done, what God did was he also provided for the spiritual needs of the people. Remember I mentioned that the Levites, that they were the, they were the priests of Israel? So they were the ones, they served, in the, they served in the tabernacle. They were the ones who offered up the sacrifices. They were the ones who taught God's word. And they were the ones who helped meet the spiritual needs of the people. And we see now what God is telling all of the tribes of Israel to do is to give cities over to the Levites that are within their geographical territory. And by doing that, what God's doing now is he's taking his spiritual leaders, the priests, and he's dispersing them throughout the tribes of Israel so that every day the people of Israel will be rubbing shoulders with God's spiritual leaders. Now, we don't have Levitical priests today. In the New Testament, we don't see it. But what God did in the New Testament, he provided spiritual leadership through the office of elders. And that's how we're governed here at Riverstone Church. So what God does is God now has his local church appoint elders to be the spiritual leaders. Other churches call them different things, but he appoints people to serve as elders. Now, when I say this, at our church, our pastors are elders, and then we have volunteer lay elders who are elected by the congregation to serve a term as elders. And God takes the role of eldership very seriously. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus, we see the qualifications, the biblical qualifications for what these men serving as elders are to live up to. Now, I want to challenge us as well. Read those qualifications. Even if you're a woman, read those qualifications. There's probably only one section where it says the husband of one wife. Everything else should apply to us if we want to grow in maturity as disciples of Jesus Christ. But you see, by God distributing the Levites, let's, car, let's you know, bring that into the, 20, the 21st century today here in Yardley, Pennsylvania. What God is expecting is his elders of the church to be in relationship with the people so that on a regular basis, the elders are not just some board that sits behind closed doors, but the elders are the spiritual shepherds and overseers over the body of Christ, getting to know the people, investing into them, and serving you as God's appointed spiritual leaders. It's a great model that God has in place for us as we live out what God is intending as well. One of the things I want to, this might sound a little self-serving for me to say is, as an elder of the church, 
But you see, God also is expecting his people to submit to the elders faithfully and joyfully. You see, God has given them a high calling. There's a lot of responsibility. There's a lot of weight on people who are going to serve as a man, as an elder. But I want to turn you to Hebrews chapter 13. For some reason, I don't, I don't think this is working, Joe. There I think he's helping me out in the back. Um, what we see in Hebrews chapter 13, let me read verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. You see, what we watch here, the elders, they're held to account. But he's called on his people to submit to them joyfully and faithfully. Now, before we look further at the cities of refuge, we're going to see some more details on that. I'd like to read um, verses 29 to 34. And um, thanks, Joe. Let's pick up in verse 29. These things shall be for a statutory ordinance to you throughout your generations in all your dwellings. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. You shall not take ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to live in the land before the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. It's kind of interesting here that God says he's going to be dwelling in the midst of the land. That's why he wants them to live justly. Picture, where does God live today? Within each of us as believers in Jesus Christ. You see, how we live really matters because we have the Spirit of God living within us. And he was going through all of these procedures and giving them all of these ordinances so that they could live in the land justly. Now, if somebody was accidentally, I gave the illustration here of Tommy and Ricky, you know, if somebody were to accidentally kill someone else, what they were to do is to flee to one of these cities of refuge. Now, remember who's going to be living in the cities of refuge? The Levitical priests. So now, the population of that city gets together, they hear the story and they determine, was this a murder or was this an accidental death? If it was an accidental death, that person could live safely, the killer could live safely within that city of refuge and be protected. However, if it was determined that he was a murderer, he'd be sent out of the city and there would be a relative of the victim that would be waiting to kill him. It's called the avenger of blood. And so this was God's really ancient form of capital punishment. And I, you know, I was, I was reading through this, and I thought to myself, something flashed in my mind. I thought, you know what, I, I think I kind of experienced a modern day, there's a little humor to this, but a modern day version of this concept. I was, um, I was on a missions trip back when I was, I think I was like 21 years old. I was in the jungles of Ecuador in the Amazon jungle for three months. And I remember we were flying in. We flew in from the edge of the jungle in these little four-seat flying Volkswagens. And we flew for two hours over nothing but jungle. 
and we landed on just the dirt on the side of the riverbank. And as we were coming in, for, literally as we came in for a landing, I looked in the river and there was an airplane upside down under the water. I'm like, this is not giving me confidence. But we landed on the strip and as we landed, I mean, I mean it, was a, it was the riverbank, the plane sank down into the mud and dirt. So they got the village, and this, this was, these guys, they, they, don't see, they didn't see white people. They were doing this with me to see if my, my color, white would come off. And we were in the village, and all the village came out, and they got underneath the wings of the airplane, and they helped to lift the plane up out of the mud to get it back onto some dry ground. And as we were doing this, we looked down, and the, like the dirt strip that we just landed on, a little ways down, Literally, we saw this man with this machete raised chasing a woman across the airstrip. And we were like shocked. Like, somebody do something. Half of us were like, get me back in the airplane. Let's go. And it was funny. The, the, the chief of the village, who happened to be one of two people who had left the village, and he learned Spanish. Half of our team spoke Spanish. And he just looked over really calmly and said, oh, don't worry. That's his mother-in-law. <laughs> so... so Careful, guys. I just hear some guys over there saying, honey, let's move to Ecuador. <laughs> um, but I, you know what? That's, it kind of ended there. We never really heard much more about it. But um, you see, let me, on, on that note, let me summarize chapter 35. See, as we look at 35, what God was doing, he was preparing his people to enter the promised land. And in doing so, what God did was he gave them two things. He gave them spiritual leaders. But he also gave him his word. See, remember, everything that God gave to Moses and is written down in Scripture, that's the word of God. That's what we have today. We as well, living here in 21st century Yardley, Pennsylvania, we have the word of God and we have spiritual leaders. You see, God gave them to you. And that's the summary point that I want to wrap up with is God gives spiritual leaders and his word to guide and care for you. Why does he do this? Well, for one... He loves you. We have a sin problem. He came to solve that sin problem through Jesus Christ. But God loves his church. And he wants his church to shine like a light to the world to draw people into a relationship with him. He wants us to take his word out to the community around us. God wants his church and he wants you as individuals to be so radically different from the world around us that people are drawn to Jesus Christ because of you. Now, I have to ask the question, are you individually and are we corporately living in such a way that when the people outside of the church look at us, they say, I want what he or she has. I want what they have. You see, as God prepared the people of Israel thousands of years ago, God's prepared the church today by giving the word of God and by giving spiritual leaders. Want to, um, from there, I want to move on, and we're going to pick up in chapter um, 36. But before I start reading chapter 36, I need to give you a little bit of background on this. If we go back to chapter 27, I'm going to give you a little summary version. Chapter 27, in that we, we met a man by the name of Zelophehad. Now, technically, we really didn't meet Zelophehad because by the time chapter 27 took place, Zelophehad was dead. But Zelophehad had three daughters. And in the ancient, the patriarchal society that Israel was, when a man died, all of his possessions were passed on primarily to his oldest son. 
And in 27, we ran into a situation where he had only daughters. So Zelophehad's daughters came to the leaders of Israel. They were from the tribe of Manasseh, and they said, our father died. Wouldn't it be only fair that his possessions, since he has no son, should go to us as his daughters? And Moses gathered together and heard from God, and they gave the land, the inheritance, over to Zelophehad's daughters. Now, that sets the stage for where we are right now, going into chapter 36, because in chapter 36, the leaders of the tribe of Manasseh come to Moses with a dilemma related to that decision that was made in chapter 27. Let's begin reading chapter 36, verses 1 to 3. And the heads of the father's households of the family of the sons of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, of the families of the sons of Joseph. Basically, all the leaders from the tribe of Manasseh are gathered together here. They came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the heads of the father's households of the sons of Israel. And they said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land by lot to the sons of Israel as an inheritance. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. Now, here's the problem. But if they marry one of the sons of the other tribes of the sons of Israel, their inheritance will be withdrawn from the inheritance of our fathers and will be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they belong. Thus, it will be withdrawn from our allotted inheritance. Well, what you see here is they're bringing this problem saying, if Zelophehad's daughters go out and they marry a man from one of the other tribes, within one generation, here's the tribe of Manasseh and smack in the middle of it, our, that land that used to belong to Zelophehad is going to be turned over to a man from one of the other tribes and we're losing our inheritance. Now, you can see this would have impacted all of the tribes, you know, within one generation of anyone who passed on an inheritance to a daughter. Well, let's just see how they answer this problem. Pick up in verse 6. Read verses 6 and 7. This is what the Lord has commanded concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, Let them marry whom they wish, only they must marry within the family of the tribe of their father. Thus no inheritance of the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tribe to tribe, for the sons of Israel shall each hold to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers." Drop down to verse 9. Thus, no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another tribe, for the tribes of the sons of Israel shall each hold to his own inheritance. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so the daughters of Zelophehad did. Well, we see that God solved the problem. You know, it's not that the people of Manasseh, the leaders, were against women. They were concerned about their inheritance. And other tribes would have been as well. So God came in and solved the situation. But what I want to point out is, I love verse 10. As we look at verse 10, look at that verse. It says, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so the daughters of Zelophehad did. You guys remember the book of Numbers? Man, didn't we go through so much grumbling, complaining, sin, unfaithfulness, rebellion, but it was like a book of complaints and sin. And here we are coming into the very close of the book in chapter 36, and it ends with this phrase, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so the daughters of Zelophehad did. 
You see, I think these young women must have stood out as an incredible testimony to the land around them. You see, I want to um, put up the next point as we, for this chapter 36. Your faithfulness to God's word is a testimony to the world. I can picture, why did Moses, obviously he was inspired by God, but why did Moses choose to include this story in the last chapter of the book of Numbers? I think this was an incredible encouragement to Moses. Can you picture the poor guy? He was beat up chapter after chapter after chapter through everything we just read. The people were rebelling against him. His own family was rebelling against him. He must have been incredibly discouraged. Moses was about to go back to God. Remember, he wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. God was about to take him up to glory. The whole first generation, they by this time, were probably dead. And now it was the next generation. Moses could have rightly been sitting there saying, complaining and just thinking, man, this younger generation, all they do is sit around and watch video games and they don't. But, you know, here we have these three girls. All of a sudden, three young women. Just rise up, hear the word of God, and obey it. How would you like it to be said of you? Just as the Lord had commanded, so Bob did. Just as the Lord had commanded, so Diane did. Wouldn't that be great for that to be able to be said of us? Now, I want to say this. If you profess to following Jesus Christ, people are watching. They're going to say, why is it that he or she doesn't sleep around like everyone else? Why is it that he or she doesn't cheat on the test when we all have the answers to the test? Why is it that he or she, they're so loving, they show so much compassion. Why is it that when somebody is hurting, they're always there meeting that need? You see, when you profess a relationship with Jesus Christ, the world is watching, and how we live really matters. Now, we've just completed all of the book of Numbers. We completed chapter 36. You know, Tom and I were talking the other day as we were thinking about the wrap-up, and we both were so glad that we decided to preach through the book of Numbers. Because, you know, there were chapters, I'll admit, we looked at them and thought, where in the world are we going to go with that chapter? But you know what? God provided an incredible story from start to finish. I want to give you and show you a picture. Actually, I'm going to have to have Joe help me out again here. I want to put a graphic on the screen. As we look at, at um, a Bible timeline and see where numbers fits in, whatever screen you're looking at, we see it starts with creation. By the way, the Bible is a story about God. From start to finish, it's God's story. It starts at creation, but sadly, we don't get very far, and we see the fall of the, very far, and we see the fall of man, where Adam and Eve sinned, and their sin brought death into the world. We see the patriarchs, we get into Egypt, and now the book of Numbers picks up with that wandering in the wilderness, and just before they go into the new land, that's where Numbers comes to a conclusion. But as we look at the Old Testament timeline, the most important thing that we see comes just after the New Testament begins, and we see the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, now that you have an idea of where numbers fits into Scripture, I want to show, we're going to wrap up today, and I want to show you a video that it's a little bit longer than we normally show on a Sunday morning. It's just over about six minutes long. They do such an incredible job of summarizing the book of numbers that we felt they could do it better than we can. So we're going to show it to you. Would you turn on the video?
The book of Numbers. This fourth book of the Bible carries forward the story of Israel after their exodus from slavery in Egypt. God had brought them to Mount Sinai, and he entered into a covenant with them there. And despite Israel's rebellion, God had graciously provided a way for Israel to live near his holy presence in the tabernacle. So the book of Numbers begins as Israel wraps up their one-year stay at Mount Sinai, and they head out into the wilderness on their way to the land that God promised Abraham. Now, the book's storyline is designed according to the stages of their journey. So the first section begins at Mount Sinai, but then they set out and travel to the wilderness of Paran. And then from there, they travel to the plains of Moab, which is right across from the Promised Land. Now, the first part opens with a census where the people are numbered. That's where the book gets its name. And then there are laws about how the tribes of Israel were to be arranged in their camp. So the tabernacle was to be at the center, and then around that, the priests and the Levites, and then around them, the 12 tribes neatly arranged with Judah at their head. Now, this was all an elaborate symbol about how God's holy presence was at the center of their existence as a people. This is all followed by a whole series of laws that develop the purity laws from the book of Leviticus. If God's presence was going to be in their midst, every effort should be made to make the camp pure, a place that welcomes God's holiness. In chapter 10, the cloud of God's presence lifts from the tabernacle and guides Israel away from Sinai out into the wilderness. And immediately things go terribly wrong. So in chapter 11, the people start complaining about their hunger and thirst and how they want to go back to Egypt. And then in chapter 12, Moses' own brother and sister begin opposing and bad-mouthing him in front of all of the people. This trip is not off to a good start. The next section begins as the Israelites arrive in the desert of Paran, about halfway to the Promised Land. And God tells Moses to send out the 12 spies, one for each tribe, so they can scout out the Promised Land. So when the spies all return, 10 of them say that there is no chance Israel can survive there because the Canaanites will destroy them. But there are two spies, Caleb and Joshua, who say that God can save them. But the ten whip up the people into a fearful rage, and they start planning a mutiny. They're going to appoint a new leader and head back to Egypt. So God is understandably angry, and Moses intercedes on the people's behalf. He calls God to be faithful to his promises to Abraham. And so God does, but not at the expense of his justice. He gives these Israelites what they want to not enter the land. And God sentences this generation to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they die. Only their children will get to enter the promised land. Now, you'd think this severe consequence would wake them up, but it gets even worse. So in the next story, there's a whole group of Levites that begin a rebellion, and they challenge Moses and Aaron's leadership, saying that they have gone way too far. So God deals severely with these Levites, and he renews his commitment to Moses and Aaron as Israel's leaders. Now, as they leave the region of Paran and hit the road, it goes downhill yet again. The Israelites start complaining again about their thirst, and they ask why Moses even brought them out of Egypt in the first place. So God tells Moses to speak to a rock to bring out water for all of the people. But Moses doesn't really do this. He oversteps his bounds. He hits the rock twice and then says, You rebels, do we have to bring water out of this rock? So Moses dishonors God by putting himself in God's place as the one who brings out the water. And so Moses brings down on himself the same fate as the wilderness generation. He too will die in the desert and never get to enter the promised land. After this, the Israelites rebel yet again, and God brings a very strange judgment on them, venomous snakes to come and bite 
people. And so Moses again intercedes on behalf of the people. And God tells Moses to do this, to make a bronze snake and to lift it up on a pole so that whoever looks at this snake would be healed of the poisonous snake bite. It's a very strange symbol. But it speaks to the challenge that God has by being faithful to his covenant. He's right to bring justice on the Israelites' evil and sin. But even God's justice gets transformed into a source of life for those who will look to God for healing. From here, the people head into the plains of Moab. And the first main part of the section focuses on the strange figure of Balaam. So the king of Moab is freaked out at this huge group of people traveling through his territory. So he hires a pagan sorcerer, Balaam, to pronounce curses on Israel. And three different times, Balaam finds that he cannot curse them. He can utter only blessing upon Israel. Remember God's promise to Abraham from Genesis 12. So not only can Balaam not curse Israel, but God actually gives him a vision about a future Israelite king who will one day bring God's justice to all of the nations. This vision recalls Jacob's promise to Judah in Genesis chapter 49. Now, it's worth stopping to reflect on the flow of the book so far. The rebellion stories in the wilderness, they just heap up on one another, getting worse and worse. And while God does bring partial acts of judgment on Israel, he's also kept showing mercy, providing food and water along the way. And so the Balaam story, it shows God's grace in bright colors. Because here's Israel. They're down in the camp grumbling and rebelling. But up in the hills, unbeknownst to them, God is protecting and even blessing them. And it's this contrast between Israel's rebellion and God's faithfulness in the wilderness. That's what made these stories so important for later generations of Israel. So the wilderness stories are retold time and again by later biblical prophets, and poets, and even by the apostles in the New Testament. And these stories always serve as a warning that while God will remain faithful to his covenant promises, he will also allow his people to walk away in rebellion and face the consequences. After this, the rest of the book focuses on the children of the wilderness generation, and they begin preparing to inherit the promised land. They take another census of the new generation, then they go on and win a number of battles with the people groups around them, and then a few tribes even begin to settle in the promised land. So the book ends with the new generation poised to enter into the land, and Moses is about to deliver his final words of wisdom and warning. But for now, that's what the book of Numbers is all about. By the way, that was put on by the Bible Project. They do every book of the Bible. You can Google it online if you want. They do a great job. But what I want to focus on was at the end you saw that there was a snake lifted up on a, on a pole. You see what happened was this was a book about sin and rebellion and these people needed a savior. You see their animal sacrifices were not enough and God brought judgment. They, some of them with the ground sucked them up. Others were, there were thousands were killed by poisonous snakes. And God told Moses to make a bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, and raise it up. Does that remind you of anything? About 1,300 years later, we had a Savior raised up on a cross. We have a sin problem just like the people in the book of Numbers. And you see, God raised up his son upon that cross that just like sin is a lot like those serpents. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, God brought, I mean, death was brought into the world as a judgment, and all of us are facing death, just like the people of Israel that were being bitten by those snakes. We're all facing death. But if we look upon that Savior who was raised up on the cross, and we come to him for the forgiveness of sins, our lives are saved. Just like those snakes, they kept biting the people. They were a real nuisance. Our sin will continue. 
We're going to face the consequences of sin. We're going to deal with sin just like those serpents. But you see, when we put our eyes upon Jesus Christ and we trust him for the forgiveness of sins, we have eternal life. And sin no longer has any mastery over us. You see, I want us to encourage an end today, remembering what Jesus did on that cross. If you have yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ, please do so. Because without him, you're like those Israelites dying in the desert, being bitten by poisonous serpents without any answer. But when you put your faith in Christ, you will live. And I also want us to confess our sins to God because just like the people of Numbers, we're grumblers, we're complainers, we're sinners. Let's confess our sins to God and thank him for the gift he's given us in Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray, and as I do, Pastor John's going to come up. We're just going to close our service with recognizing some new members this morning. But as he makes his way up, let's close our service in a time of prayer. Father, we thank you for the book of Numbers. Just like all of the books of your Bible, God, they point us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to not be grumblers, complainers, unfaithful, people living in rebellion. Lord, I pray that we will be people that would set our eyes upon Jesus Christ, that we will live as forgiven sinners, and Lord, that we would seek to be faithful to you. Father, change our hearts and help us to become more and more like Christ. Amen.